She's like, do you have an EpiPen? I was like, no, I've never had one. And she's like, I'm prescribing you an EpiPen that you need to carry on you. And Ethan, um, um, where is your EpiPen right now? I think it's in my bed. I think it's in my bedside table. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure it's in my bedside table. Yeah, but you're not 100% sure. I'm 90. <laughs> I'm not, I'm 92 percent. Okay, which is a B plus depending on your grading scale. Sure, I mean that's an A on some grading scales. So exactly, that's not bad. I'll take yeah. that. All right. How's it going, green team? Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Take It or Leave It. I'm Ethan Wise and I'm with Nick Farringdon. Hello. So today we're going to talk more primarily on uh, veggies and fruits, things that you would grow in a container between Nick's experience as a grower and working in the industry as a grower for many years. And mine, my experience mostly just comes from being the gardener with the firsthand experience of what works uh, in my space, specifically container gardening. We, we have a lot of fun information for you. We are going to talk about herbs, but we have such a substantial amount of herbs that we might talk about and different benefits of them, especially kind of touching in on pollinators. We are going to release that as a separate episode that you'll find on our Patreon page. And speaking of Patreon, that herbs episode will be available to our current Patreon subscribers. If you're not a subscriber yet, for just a couple bucks a month, you'll be able to access that extra content, extra episodes like the herb episode for more information on kind of the edible gardening category that we're talking about today. And for our Patreon page, we are at Take It or Leaf It. And for our other socials and things like that, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Take It or Leave It Pod. We're at TakeItOrLeafItPod.com for our website. If you have any questions, comments, have any ideas for future episodes or things you'd like to hear us talk about, our email is at show at TakeItOrLeafItPod.com. My personal Instagram is at n. Farringdon, F-A-R-R-I-N-G-D-O-N. And mine is at Hortwise, H-O-R-T-W-I-S-E. And with that, we'll jump into the edible gardening topic. So veg, like Ethan had said, veggies and fruits, not so much the woody category, like small raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, or, or fruit trees. Those will be kind of down the pipeline for topics. But today we're going to go more into things you could either buy from seed online or at your garden center, or that would be available as plant starts from your local garden center. Well, yeah, you know, this is like I was, we were saying at the beginning, this will be kind of an interesting conversation because we have varying experiences in what we do with edible gardening. Whereas you have the background in more so of the growing and mass distribution of thousands of plants. But like you had said when we were talking before, veggie gardening at your house isn't necessarily one of your favorite pastimes or a huge hobby of yours. I tend to do a little bit more 
gardening at my own house, whether I've lived in an apartment or living in a house. I primarily focus on container gardening just because it's more manageable with my schedule. I enjoy doing that. And, and even though you don't do as much at your house, your grandparents do a lot of it. They have a large acre plot and you help them out several times a year. Um, and so you're able to kind of vicariously get plenty of homegrown goodies from them. Yeah. Regular yeah. They have. Yeah. After after helping other people with their gardening and landscaping, I tend not to have the energy to do it at my own house. But uh, yeah, they have a about a 12 acre property out in the country. And for as long as I've been around and then some they've had a, about a 35 by 100 foot garden that they even today, good chunk of what they eat, they grow there on the farm. So yeah, I'll, I'll go down and help them with their landscape stuff, keeping up with the garden. You know, it's a lot for, for just two people to maintain that much property with that many garden beds and perennial beds, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm never short on goodies to take home after a a work day, helping them out. One thing I know it's kind of off topic here, but I was kind of curious. So with all of the things that they grow in their edible garden space, because I know they have chickens as well. Do they use some of those items to then feed the chickens? And if so, what are some of the things that they grow that they use to feed the, the chickens? Uh, not so much with feeding the chickens, but they will, when they clean out the straw and chicken manure out of the chicken house, they will compost that for a season or two. They'll also, Mm. all their veggie and kitchen scraps, that all gets composted in. All that kind of goes in the same thing. The same bin gets mixed together. And then they'll periodically, at the beginning of the season, till that into the garden. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. But uh, for me, I've I've always enjoyed vegetable garden. That's one of the things that I remember earliest as a child doing something with my mom outside. She always had a veggie and herb garden. And so it was one of those practices that I just always maintained from living in an apartment to living in a house. Gosh, probably every year since I can, as far back as I can remember, whether living with my mom or having my own place, I have always had some sort of uh, vegetable or fruit growing. And it's only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as my understanding and my palate has increased. But yeah, so what I'm going to focus on as far as what I'm going to be talking about primarily is what I'm growing this season. And I've grown different things other seasons like grapes and corn and beans and peas. But this year, I've kind of narrowed it down to more of of what I'm just interested. You know, it's one thing to grow things just to see how they do, but I'm not a big green bean eater. I'm not a big snap pea eater. Grapes take too long. Corn is way more upkeep than I'm willing to give. Takes up uh, a lot of space. (laughs) It takes up a lot of space and you really cannot forget to water it casts a big shadow the raccoons can get in there right as it's ripe and eat everything i've been frustrated in my attempts to grow corn not to say that i won't circle back around to it but what i'm focusing on this year are things that i feel like i can pretty easily maintain and grow and get a harvest from given that i have a job and a business and a podcast (laughs) that i'm working on so (laughs) what i have going in this year are strawberries Now, I am allergic to strawberries, so these are grown for my wife, 
I'll live dangerously a couple times and I'll probably snack on a couple strawberries. I don't think my doctor is going to be a listener. Uh, maybe she will. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, how did that conversation go, Ethan, when you asked her about that? She said, don't. Uh, I, <laughs> when I told her, I was like, oh, I thought it was kind of like something you just build up a resistance to over time. She's like, no, that's not at all how allergies work. And it's uh, just your airways day. that close, right? Yeah, it's just a little bit of of tightness in the throat and then full body hives that can happen if I eat too much. Now, I have eaten like three or four strawberries in a setting and been okay, especially if I take a Benadryl. But my doctor was not at all thrilled to hear that. And then she had said this was a couple years ago. She was like, do you have an EpiPen? Because she was a newer doctor that I had started seeing. She's like, do you have an EpiPen? I was like, no, I've never had one. And she's like, I'm prescribing you an EpiPen that you need to carry on you. She was like, I don't think you understand how often strawberry is used as a flavor enhancer Mm. in all kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. Um, So I'm even at this point now where if it's even like a strawberry candy that is likely artificially flavored, I won't even mess with it. And Ethan, Um, where is your EpiPen right now? It is in my, I think it's in my bed. I think it's in my bedside table. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure it's in my bedside table. Yeah, but you're not a hundred percent sure. I'm 90 I'm I'm 92 percent. Okay, which is a B plus depending on your grading scale. Sure. I mean, that's an A on some grading scales. So exactly. That's not bad. I'll take that. I feel like that's what I strive for as a horticulturist is is no is like sometimes it's a B plus effort and sometimes it's an A minus effort. And if I could pull that through, I'm nailing it. (laughs) I mean, I'm just I, I. I definitely didn't think you'd know where it was. So <laughs> that's that's that is um yeah, I don't fault you for that. I don't fault you for not thinking that I would know where it's at. There's yep. a good chance I've totally bullshitted both of us. And <laughs> True. It's not there. And that would okay. also be understandable. <laughs> so moving on, like I said, the strawberries are being grown for Lindsay, my wife. She very much likes her strawberries. So I chose a couple ever bearing and I chose a June bearing. And the idea behind the ever bearing ones is to kind of get that intermediate sort of growth throughout the season. I find in my experience, the ever bearings tend to not grow as large of a fruit, but you do tend to get a little bit more of them. And then I bought one June bearing. So that's going to be your primary, like your heavy late spring into summer producer and i can usually get bigger strawberries on that plant what do you think yeah there are a few major categories for strawberries and we won't get into that super in detail for this episode but there are ever bearing june bearing day neutral and i believe there's a fourth one that i can never remember or that maybe it doesn't exist but typically if you're wanting to get the biggest crop the highest quantity of berries generally the june bearing is the best and again if you're having like a big strawberry patch and you're going to freeze them or make a jelly or i think you nailed it i just i just googled it and google is just listing three types the june bearing the ever bearing and the day neutral oh perfect 
So yeah, the June bearing is going to be your highest highest quantity of berries, but since they're all coming on roughly in June, depending on where you're living at, those are best for, you know, you're going to get that whole crop over a few week period. So depending on how big of a strawberry patch you have, that might be more than one one or two people can eat in a reasonable amount of time. So you're going to want to freeze those or cook them into a jelly or something like that, some way to process to dry them, whatever, to be able to store that quantity. Whereas with your Everbearing, I believe you get like or maybe with Everbearing, are they kind of periodic through the whole season and then day neutral? You get, I want to say, like three waves, like a late spring, early summer, midsummer, and and closer to fall. But generally, Everbearing is going to be your smallest quantity of fruits comparatively across the three. And then day neutral, I think since those come in kind of three or four separate waves, I think it's three different waves of fruit production in the season. I think the day neutral produces more waves because they're a cold hardier species. Yeah. The ever bearing is usually two, maybe three. Sure. And the day neutral, which I don't know if I find those as regularly. Yeah. That's definitely because it's a cold hardier species. You can get that third or maybe fourth wave of, uh, of production. But and the difference I find being the fruits to be even smaller on the day neutral than they are on the ever bearing. Yeah, I, I think it can really vary too. Like my grandparents have always grown honey eye every so many years. They'll cycle out and make a new bed because those strawberry plants can kind of get old and tired after three or four years or so. And the, you'll notice the production right. kind of drop. They've always grown honey eye. You know, sometimes you're getting a half inch fruit. Sometimes you're getting an inch and a half or so fruit. And again, they're out in the country. It's timber soil, which they've added a lot and and made that soil more rich over time. But yeah, it can really, size can really vary by the variety. But depending on what you want, if you're wanting a bunch all at the same time, so you can eat some and then process the rest and get the, uh, the most quantity for your buck, the June bearing is the best option. If you want to have a few throughout the season for your kids to pick or to snack on on your porch in a, in a container, like similarly to what you do, Ethan, yeah, you might want to go with some of those other varieties or a mix if you have the space. Okay. So Lindsay will enjoy those as I watch her eat them, and I sneak some sometimes with a Benadryl. Uh-huh. <laughs> I might only have one or two. I'll likely, I'm pretty good anymore about completely avoiding strawberries. I think I only remember eating two strawberries last year. Uh, Since we aren't shooting video yet for the podcast, for those of you listening, I am shaking my head at Ethan. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure, I'm sure his doctor's ears are ringing right now too. Uh Uh-huh. I also have as far as kind of a traditional fruit goes, even though tomatoes and peppers are fruits, but so regularly we refer to them as veggies. But as a as another traditional fruit that I have growing is a black raspberry, specifically a a patio variety called baby cakes, which is a dwarf species anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so because it's a a dwarf, it, it does work well in a large container. You don't want to put it in some little small 10 or 12 inch container. I highly recommend in most of the things that I'm talking about in at least getting a 15, at least minimum 15 inch wide container and ideally at least an 18 inch depth. And if you can find larger containers, you're going to have a better harvest on a lot of these things. Like a five gallon bucket kind of depth, but wider, yeah, five but gallon, wider. seven gallon. Sure. 
So I think my raspberry that I just potted up is in a 18 and a half inch wide container that is about 20 inches deep. Okay. And it's in the container. So last year I had grown a black raspberry or I'm sorry, a blue raspberry and it didn't overwinter, unfortunately, even though it's zone hardy. I think that one was only zone hardy up to five and we're six. Sure. So I knew it was a chance, but blue raspberries are pretty uncommon to find at least in my experience hunting for them. So I decided to give it a shot and it grew pretty well in the container last year. I didn't get much of a harvest. The birds kept getting to them and the squirrels before I could, but I tried to overwinter it in a plastic pop-up tent and kind of tucked in in my screened in porch, but it didn't make it. So this year I chose the raspberry baby cakes. It's hardy up to zone four. So usually when I'm talking to people about anything that you want to keep any sort of perennial that you want to keep in a container, ideally you want to try to go two zones hardier than what your current zone is to have a better success rate in getting that to overwinter in a container. And a so good, I'll give that a shot, see how it produces. And a good spot to bring those containers in to winter them over, usually like an unheated garage, maybe even a an unheated shed if if it's somewhat protected, if your winters don't get too terribly cold. But you definitely don't want to leave those out exposed because the uh, the roots will freeze. And like you said, on unheated, you don't want to bring them inside because they do still need to go through a dormancy period. Yep. They do a lot during the growing season between producing new leaves, producing flowers that actually produce a fruit. So they, they do need their break period towards the end of the season. So if you wanted to bring your raspberries or blackberries, blueberries inside, you might be able to get a season or two out of doing that. But eventually they are going to just become exhausted from never having uh, any sort of dormancy period and they will likely die on you. And as Ethan mentioned, some of those varieties, some of those specific varieties he's mentioning are are very geared towards being grown in containers so they're more compact not as wild and viney as some of the more traditional varieties and we'll get into kind of the woody small fruits in a subsequent episode but those are mm -hmm. good examples because like ethan said he, we're kind of touching on some of the both in-ground fruit veggie gardening and containers for those of you who don't have in-ground garden space and uh, so then of course tomatoes i've had plenty of success growing tomatoes in ground and I've had plenty of success growing them in containers. The tomatoes that I chose this season are sun gold or sun sugar. They're, they're very interchangeable. It's a small orange cherry tomato that is very sweet, just delicious right off the plant. Even my wife, I use this as a, as a common story of kind of telling people how sweet they are. My wife was never really a big tomato fan until one season I grew sun sugars and I think I was growing sun sugars and yellow pears, which is another cherry variety. And the yellow pear literally looks just like that. It looks like a miniature yellow pear. Also pretty sweet. I find the sun sugars to be sweeter. And she ate one right off the plant and she's like, wow, those are really good. So ever since I found out that she also enjoys them, that's become a staple where I'm growing either sun gold or sun sugar every year. I grow them in containers. They do perfectly fine in containers. I, I really enjoy them. Definitely give them a nice tall cage to grow up um, because they are indeterminate and they will keep growing, especially as a cherry indeterminate variety. Those will grow up as much space as you give them to grow up. And real quick, I'll jump in and give a little comparison between determinate and indeterminate. And I also have a, a fun story about sun sugars. 
at the garden center and greenhouse that I used to work at in Bloomington, Illinois, we would grow around 80 varieties of tomatoes, 20, 25 varieties of peppers, and then a million different herbs and other miscellaneous veggies and leafy greens, that kind of thing. But the sun sugar at that time, this was, you know, 2015, 2016 or so, the sun sugar was by far our top selling tomato. And then second to that, usually the the other sweet varieties, whenever we would sell out of sun sugar, it'd be sugar snack, which is a sweet red or or something similar of those really sweet cherry varieties. Sweet and I could, 100 comes to mind. Yes. I feel like that's a pretty common one that people like for that yes. sweetness. Yep, for sure. And pretty much if I had those sweet varieties in, they'd sell out, but sun sugar by far the most. I mean, I could order in, say like 20 trays of them a week. So at 10, 12 plants a tray and we would have a waiting list by then. And I would, if I tried to get 20 in season, you know, maybe I'd get 10, 12, 15 trays. Usually, usually I was always trying to get whatever they would give me and that day by noon, if they would come in at six, seven o'clock in the morning, by noon, they'd be gone. And I would have people show me pictures from previous seasons. There was a guy who would, he would make, it was either eight or 10 feet of kind of like hog fencing. He would roll into a tomato cage and it was eight or 10 feet high. And he would bring in and show me pictures of him on a ladder 10 feet up in the air, picking cherry tomatoes off this plant. If you give them space, they go and go and go. And that's kind of the big difference between the indeterminate and determinate tomatoes. And this can kind of be applied to beans and some other things like that. But determinate is usually your more compact, shrubby tomato plant. Usually going to stay around like three to four feet tall, couple feet maybe three, four feet wide, depending on what variety, but generally going to be more compact in your indeterminates. Like I said, with those cherries, the more cage space you give them, they're just going to keep growing. They're going to be more, a much taller, wider, more viney plant. If you don't cage them, they're going to be sprawling all over the ground. Uh, And again, Mm -hmm. with all, with all tomatoes, unless it's a really compact patio variety that that you can plant in a pot, generally you want to have a cage because the more support they have and the more structure they have to grow on, you're just going to get a higher fruit production. So that's kind of the the biggest difference between determinate and indeterminate. And I will find like my lemon boys in the... So before we moved to where we're at now in St. Louis, when I was living in Peoria, when we were living in a house there, I grew lemon boys in the ground Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't stake any of my tomatoes and the lemon boy in particular, which is one of the ones that I was going to talk about that I'm growing in a container. It grew very happily all over the ground. There were some that I had to keep tying up to the, to the fence that I had built around Mm -hmm. uh, to do better. But for whatever reasons, my lemon boy just sprawled all across the ground and I had plenty of fruit production but this garden was also in full sun so sure even while growing across the ground and and being somewhat shaded and protected from the tops of a lot of other plants that particular one just thrived sprawling across the ground and i didn't really clean up my garden space at my previous house the first year that i had done this garden and i just had volunteer lemon boys growing in my <laughs> garden last year although lemon boy sweet. lemon boy is a hybrid so who knows what you're going to get from that seed 
uh, they weren't lemon boys. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they grew. Some of them kind of came up red. Some of them came up orange, kind of like a Jubilee. There's a, yeah. there's an orange round tomato called Jubilee kind of look like that. But yeah, good point. Even though the lemon boy is sometimes referred to as being an heirloom, it is a hybrid. And so you don't really have a guarantee that it's exactly going to grow a lemon boy again from the seed. And the main difference, speaking of heirlooms versus hybrids, in particular with tomatoes, the heirloom varieties, typically you're going to have maybe not quite what we think of as that grocery store, perfectly smooth, round red tomato. They're going to be maybe a funky color, a funky shape, both. And if you save those seeds, they will grow true to seed. So if you save seeds year to year and you plant those, you're going to get that same variety year to year. Whereas with some of these hybrids, uh, thinking of big boy, better boy, early girl, early girl, celebrity, celebrity champion, a lot of those, because those are hybrid crosses, if you save seeds and plant them, you won't necessarily get, in fact, you won't get that exact same tomato year to year. You're going to get a tomato, but it's it's not going to be the same. And actually jumping back, that reminds me one more thing with determinate and indeterminate. The determinate varieties like celebrity, champion, some of those that are common hybrids, a lot of times they will set all of their flowers and fruits around the same window. Now, there are semi-determinants, I think champion, it's either champion or celebrity, I always get them flip-flopped, that will get all their fruits around the same window and then maybe have a few stragglers later on. But a lot of the determinants, you'll get all your fruits at one time. So it's good if you're going to be canning or otherwise processing them and you want to just get it all done at the same time, yank those plants. Kind of like the June bearing strawberry. Exactly, exactly. Whereas your indeterminates that are bigger and more wild... Those are going to flower and fruit up until frost kills the plant in fall. So that's a big, big distinction. Which is what I like. Right. If you want, if you want fruits all through your season, you want to go generally with an indeterminate. If you want to can, process them, freeze them, make a sauce, whatever, and you want to just get that all done in the same month during summer, then you would want to go more the determinate route. My uh, father-in-law likes to do that. He likes to grow determinants because he's big into jarring and and or Mm -hmm. vacuum sealing. He'll blanch and kind of vacuum seal for a sauce down the road, put them in the freezer. So he very much likes to store and then bring them out. I'm more of a fresh eating person. I'm not, I've just never really delved into the canning or vacuum sealing, even though I have a vacuum sealer. And I know that you can jar and can somewhat easily. It's just never been a route that I've taken. I just prefer to what I have eat when I have it. Yep. Put it in the fridge or give it to people who would eat it. So that's always just kind of been my mentality as far as so I I do myself tend to focus on indeterminates, which seems to be mostly heirloom varieties. It's, it seems to be that heirloom and indeterminate goes hand in hand. For the most part, yeah. Like For the my, most part. With my grandparents out there, they do, since they do so much canning and freezing and all that, they will tend to plant a lot of celebrities to get get that crop all at the same time, make their spaghetti sauce, their salsas, 
all those things. So they'll use those determinate or semi-determinate varieties for that purpose. And then they'll also have, uh, and another favorite of mine is the German pink, which is an heirloom. And that's a, gosh, last season they were getting some tomatoes that were a pound and a half, two pounds. I mean, when you slice this tomato, you're getting slices that are bigger than the piece of bread that you're putting it on. If you're making like a BLT, they're that's like a mortgage lifter or tomato. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not always quite that massive, but it's definitely, if you want a tomato that is super flavorful and juicy and an heirloom that you can save seed, they're more on the pink end. They're not so much a red, just a good meaty, sweet tomato for thoroughly covering a slice of bread for a BLT or whatever. Uh, the German pink is a great one for that. And they also have, being an heirloom, they're also a potato leaf variety, which is kind of fun. So since tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, peppers, they're all in that, they're on that nightshade family. Some of these tomato varieties, heirlooms in particular, can express the potato leaf shape on the plant. So looking at, say, a celebrity that's a hybrid versus this particular type of heirloom, the one will look more like the traditional tomato leaf and the German pink or brandy wine, I think, is one that's on your list, too. They have that potato leaf shape, which is just kind of fun. Yeah, and kind of going into that pink variety. Yeah, I have a hillbilly and brandy wine that I'm growing. I find the hillbilly and the brandy wine, in my experience, to be very similar. Both of them are a pink, mild, sweet tomato. I like the hillbilly for sandwiches. It's one of those ones where you cut into and it's just super meaty. It's not just going to juice all over the place. I like that on a sandwich or a burger, something that's not going to make the bread soggy. Sure, yeah. So that's why I like the hillbilly. And then the brandy wine gets me a very similar flavor and in the same category as that German pink, but it can have a little bit more juiciness to it. Mm -hmm. So some people would say, you know, brandy wine would be good for fresh eating, just like eating it like an apple or great for, for sauces or salsas, things like that, since it tends to be a little bit juicier than a hillbilly. But I get a similar flavor profile, so I'm going to grow them both this year. This is the first year I've grown them both. I've usually picked one or the other, mm-hmm. or I've done a German pink as well instead. So, But this year, I was just curious to see growing them both together, because even though I feel like I can say now, I feel like the flavor profiles are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. This will be the first year that I've grown them together to side be able to side. eat one side by side and and know for a fact that the way I grew them, do they really taste the same? So I might have an update next year when we're talking about what we're growing in our garden space. But yeah, so those are the tomatoes that I'm growing this year. I told myself I was only going to grow two or three varieties, but it's so hard to not. And once again, I bought four tomatoes, so I will likely have more tomatoes than I know what to do with. So I'll be giving (laughs) some to neighbors and friends and family whenever I have an opportunity to. And I I would always Um, tell people too, when I was growing a lot of tomato varieties, it's always good to try. If you grow a variety one year and don't quite like the flavor profile, give it a second chance. If, If you have enough space, even if you just grow one, because year to year, you can get a pretty varied flavor on the same type of of tomato. And that could be based on rain, how hot or dry the season was. If you have a a cooler, rainier year, those tomatoes are going to uptake that water more. And so you're going to have a juicy big tomato, but the flavor is more diluted. Whereas if you have a hot, dry year, 
and you're watering a little more sparingly or having to water by hand versus just relying on rain, you'll get a much richer flavor from that tomato. So, you know, give them, give them at least a couple years, couple tries before you decide to pass on a variety. Good point. And also something to keep in mind as far as growing your tomatoes, most tomatoes do not like to set or mature their fruit when the temperature starts to get above, I think it's like 85, 88 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you're noticing that your tomato plant is trying to set fruits and you're just sitting on green fruits or nothing's happening, try shading them. For me in a container, it's easy because I can, in the hot, hot summer months, I can move those under a tree. Um, I have two dogwood trees that are nearby where I keep my container vegetable garden. And so I can move those underneath one of the dogwood uh, trees to kind of give them a little bit of the reprieve of the Mm -hmm. heat. And they might still not set entirely or mature to completion on the plant when it's 99 degrees outside, but they can at least get further along. And then I can always cut them off. If it's a large green plant and I don't want it to rot on the plant, I can cut it off and just put it in a paper bag inside my house. And that usually helps it to mature um, and get to a point where it's edible. Real quick on the note of tomatoes, I have a couple honorable mentions here for tomatoes and and one more little tidbit as far as care for tomatoes. I really regularly hear of people having issues with what we know as blossom end rot on tomatoes. Oh, good call. Thank you for yeah. bringing that up. Yeah, yes. totally spaced it. So the, and, and what that will show as on the plant is the bottom of either the not quite mature or the mature fruit, you'll see that dark, almost rotten looking circle on the bottom of the fruit. And that's called blossom end rot. And a lot of people think it's some kind of a disease. And actually what it is, is a calcium deficiency. This can happen in a container, in the ground. I would say it's probably more likely in a container, especially if you're using some kind of just like veggie potting mix because a lot of soilless medias, as we mentioned back in our peat episode, if you haven't listened to that one, a lot of those soilless medias are more a vessel for nutrients that you add or have to come with some kind of nutrient added to them because that peat is more of a moisture and carrier vessel or as a media. So if you're seeing that blossom end rot, it is a calcium deficiency in either your your soil in your garden or your soilless media in your, your potting mix in your container gardens. And so an easy way to correct that even mid-season is to get a tomato or veggie-specific fertilizer. Again, if it's something you're eating, we would both recommend an organic I use tomato tone. Yep. Tomato tone Uh, is a good one. It's Spelma tomato tone, which has about 5% calcium in it. And some of them will even have a higher percentage calcium than that. And if it's, if you're seeing the blossom end rot a lot, I'll tell people, Hey, look for something that's got, you know, crank up that calcium. And if you add that to your soil surface and water it in, you will see a difference because the plants will uptake that calcium and you won't get that blossom end rot. It's a pretty common issue. I also have a yield booster spray which has a much higher concentration of calcium in it. And just that you can foliar spray. feed. Yep, foliar spray. When the, when the plant is flowering, you can just spray this yield booster directly on the flower, which is essentially a calcium shot to the plant. But one thing too, even though it is a calcium deficiency, you might have calcium in your soil, especially if you've added a calcium-enriched fertilizer. Mm-hmm. But if you're not getting those 
tomato plants watered correctly. You know, if you're coming home every day and your tomato plants are completely flagging over and drought um, stressed, and that happens on a regular basis, well, even if they have calcium in the soil, you're going to still experience tomato end rot um, or blossom end rot because the calcium needs water in order to be moved throughout that plant. Mm -hmm. So if your plant is drought rest, then that calcium can't move up and down the phloem layer or, um, of, of that plant, or I'm sorry, the xylem layer of that plant, it stays stuck. So just something else to keep in mind is even if you've added the fertilizer, make sure that your tomatoes during the season, the hot summer months are staying adequately watered. And that might mean that before you leave for work, you're going to have to water them. You might not always be able to just bank on watering them when you get home from work or watering. If, if you're in a container like me, only watering them once a day, you very well might have to water two or three times a day. If it's easy for you to set up a drip system in your pots, I highly recommend that, especially if you where you live, you experience hot summer months. You can pick up Rainbird and Orbit clocks and drip related stuff is usually available even at Menards or, you know, hardware stores like that. And you can set up a little drip timer and a, a little skinny drip tube, go to your pots pretty, pretty inexpensively. And actually on the note of watering brings me to probably the second most common issue I see people ask about with tomatoes is tomato splitting when you get the fruits that that get those splits mm, in them that heal mm -hmm, over. Mm -hmm. And that is generally caused by too much water or too much water too quickly. So if you have a hot, dry summer and that fruit is close to maturing and you get a big downpour, heavy rain... And that plant that's been in, in a semi-drought is now absorbing all that water. Those fruits get too much water too quickly and you get the splitting in the fruit. Or when you water your tomatoes, if you're overwatering, if you're just kind of giving them a quick deluge of water, that can cause some of that splitting because all that water is going to those fruits too quickly and they can't expand fast enough. So that's that's what causes that splitting. I have one honorable mention here in a kind of a little bit different category of tomato is the Roma type tomatoes. Uh, a lot of people oh, grow sure, sure. Roma, Roma 2, Roma 3. There are a bunch of different varieties. It's kind of that more oblong. San Marzano. I would, yes. I would classify the San Marzano tomato in there as well. And that's exactly the one I wanted to mention. Uh, San Marzano, if you're going to make a sauce or want like a skinnier tomato to slice up and throw on a salad or whatever, and you don't want to do cherry tomatoes, San Marzano is just a great all-around they, if you eat them fresh, they don't get that kind of mealy taste that the, some of the other Roma varieties can get when they're eaten fresh versus cooked down into a sauce. Any high-end Italian restaurant that's doing their own sauces, they're using San Marzano tomatoes. So they're a good multi-purpose, very meaty, fleshy, not a lot of juice, not a lot of seeds, just a great... Uh, kind of sauce, uh, sauce tomato, and then of course for for fresh eating. So I always like to throw that one in. So even though the San Marzano tomato that you grow here is still a San Marzano uh, tomato, is an heirloom species, it might not taste the same as what you are getting in in Italy. It is referred to as the San Marzano tomato because of the soil conditions of the San Marzano. Uh, region of Italy sure. um, and something about the soil composition kind of gives that that tomato that really rich flavor. So when you're buying that San Marzano that's already canned, a product of Italy, that canned tomato might taste different than your canned tomato of San Marzano. But like Nick was saying, you're still getting that 
low seed count, that non-graininess, that really flavorful tomato. But don't don't beat yourself up as if your canned San Marzanos don't taste the same uh, as the ones that are coming from Italy. It is a different growing media that will be very hard for you to mimic. True. Just like a uh, a Cuban cigar versus a Nicaraguan cigar. Ooh, we'll have to. That'll be a fun episode. We'll roll our own cigars and smoke them when we have video. Mm. Ooh, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so getting into peppers. I know we yeah, so, we just touched yeah. a lot on tomatoes, but a lot of people grow a lot of tomatoes. So probably one of the most grown fruits that the average homeowner or renter would have, especially because they're versatile in the ground or containers. Yep, for sure. So followed up by peppers and peppers. I like to grow peppers tend to be on average, much more drought resilient than a tomato is. And sometimes depending on the pepper, the more drought stress they are or, or heat stress they are, the more flavorful and or spicier they may become. I picked this year one of my uh, staples whenever I can find them is a poblano. I love the big the big pepper that a poblano can produce. It's also more of a mild flavor, can have a little bit of heat to it, but nothing that's going to, you know, you're not going to see a poblano necessarily in a, a spicy pepper eating contest. Right. Um, but but a poblano can have a little bit of heat. Great for stuffing. One of my favorite things to get anytime I go to a Hispanic restaurant is the chili relleno, um, which is a stuffed poblano pepper, uh, usually with ground beef and rice, maybe some other types of uh, veggies in there, and then drenched in cheese, and it's delicious. So the poblano pepper is what I like to grow in a container versus a bell pepper. I am not alone in the success rate of bell peppers in containers. They do tend to want a little bit more water than your average pepper in my experience, but I just haven't been terribly successful in growing bell peppers in containers. And since that's what I'm doing this year, I chose a poblano. Another great substitute for the poblano pepper, if you wanted a large pepper for stuffing, the del Toro pepper is another great one. It has a little bit more heat than a poblano, but I still wouldn't necessarily classify that as a spicy pepper. Yeah, I've I've pretty consistently heard from most people that having issues with growing bell peppers or when you do you're getting like a handful of fruits off of that right. plant you, in your you, whole season. You get season. like maybe 10 bell peppers on the whole plant. Maybe, you know, if you're doing maybe. A, if you're doing a great job, yeah. So one that I would always recommend to people cuz it seems like the pointed peppers tend to be more prolific and fruit producing than the blocky bell type peppers. So I would point people towards the pimento, which is kind of a smaller, smaller than a, a bell, what, two, three inches long and kind of like a, a nice pointed, not kind a, of, like they can kind of have a bit of a rounded. Yeah. Not, not to them as well. Not pointed like a chili, not skinny. No. It's a more, it's more ball shaped. It's a ball shaped pepper with a little bit of a little bit of, of point. Yeah. And those are definitely, I would still categorize them as a sweet pepper they have a thicker wall i believe they store and freeze better if you were going to do something like that and not get slimy like a bell pepper can and being one of those smaller more in the pointed pepper kind of category you can more reliably get a higher yield off of those than you would on on most of your traditional bell type peppers 
And they did, they're very aesthetic looking too. I, oh, I, yeah. a plant that's, that's full of pimento, happy pimento pepper plant is just very nice to look at all those little perfectly red, round, shiny peppers. Yep. Yeah. Aesthetically, I like it. So the other ones that I'm growing, I have cayenne, specifically the thin cayenne. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit skinnier. That's going to be my replacement for Gong Bao, which was a Thai chili pepper that I had grown before. And so that's kind of a honorable mention early on before the honorable mentions uh, are listed after the peppers. But my thin cayenne is replacing the Gong Bao since I still have two mason jars full of dried Gong Bao peppers from like five or six years ago. Uh, it was just such a massive producing plant. And that's like a little um, tiny pointed chili pepper, right? Oh, yeah. Like a, like I think another common name for it is the Thai cigarette pepper because they're just or Thai the chili. size of a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And those, so I'm growing the, fruit, the cayenne. The fruit sticks up above the plant on the Thai chili, don't they? Uh, mine kind of grew down and outwards up not really growing straight up okay wasn't quite like the uh, sport pepper oh sure but at least on the one that i had sure um that one kind of grew all different directions but not necessarily just straight up and that was you'd call that a hot pepper but but on the mild end right it had a a sweet heat to it fresh off the plant but Damn, when that thing was dried. So with the this is specifically the Gong Bao and I grew in a container and I actually overwintered it too. I just put it in a west facing window and it kept producing all winter long. Oh, yeah. um, it was phenomenal producer. But I had a friend over and his girlfriend at the time and I had eaten some of the fresh it was my first year growing the Gong Bao. This was I don't know 5 plus years ago. And I was growing it and uh, I had eaten a few fresh off the plant and it had a little bit of heat to it, but had a really nice, sweet, just uh, just a good flavor profile. And I didn't think much of it after it dried that it was going to become way hotter. (laughs) And so I made this really nice chicken dinner for everybody. He and his girlfriend came over. And my wife was over and we're playing board games and whatnot and visiting. And I cook up this nice chicken and I made a homemade cream sauce to pour over the pasta. And I added some chopped up. I chopped up two, maybe three Gong Bao dried peppers. And they're like, what, an inch long? No, these were the Gong Bao's were two, three inches long. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of the the Thai chili I was thinking of were the little, little baby inch long. So maybe that's what I'm thinking of where they stick up above the plant. Probably probably more similar to like the look uh, or the aesthetic of like your ornamental chilies yeah. you might find. Yeah. Which are also edible, but just so hot. <laughs> um, uh, I've tried them all and I've regretted every time I've tried an ornamental pepper. <laughs> so, but yeah, the, the Gong Bao, these are about I'd say I'd say they're probably closer to three inches long. Gotcha. And I think I chopped up two and mix it into the sauce, not trying the dried pepper flakes before I just added them all into this sauce. <laughs> and it was a large saucepan of sauce. It was a lot of sauce. Sure. And it was so hot. Holy fudge. And my friend uh, who came over, well, he had some stomach, you know, hot food was not at all his thing, you know, he would, he was prone to having some stomach issues and it ruined his night. (laughs) Totally. He spent a majority of the rest of that evening in the bathroom 
And I felt so bad. It's like, this was not a joke. I didn't mean to do this. This was totally unintentional. Everyone is just like sweating. Their faces are hot. No one's enjoying what they're eating. Um, (laughs) And he's now got doo-doo booty for the rest of the evening. And I just felt really bad. So yeah, the gong bao, when it dries, severely raised the heat level of it. But fresh off the plant was very manageable and, and quite tasty. Um, so anyway, speaking that's my of, Gung story. Speaking of hot peppers and caution with hot peppers, I did want to throw in a little note on kind of handling those, especially for <laughs> yeah, especially for stuff that's really getting in the hot end of the the Scoville units. And for those of you who don't know, Scoville units are kind of the the scale used to measure heat of peppers. Um, well, hell, even jalapenos, which have a surprisingly low Scoville unit, if you handle a jalapeno and uh, that could still be pretty hot depending on what orifice you touch. Well, yeah. And on a particularly hot, dry year, you'll get hotter jalapeno. They're hotter peppers, too. I've noticed kind of like getting a, a sweeter, more flavorful tomato on a hot, dry year. But generally with those hot peppers, from my understanding, it even starts as soon as when the plant starts to set flowers. But you, if you're growing habaneros all the way on up to Carolina reapers, so like your your scorpions, your ghost peppers, your Trinidads, those are the what? That's the category I refer to those peppers as your butthole burns, <laughs> Scotch bonnets, any of that kind of thing. If you're handling the plant or handling the fruit at that point, you really want to be wearing gloves. I know years ago I was with a friend making a curry and we had some fresh scotch bonnets that her dad had grown. This was back when I was still out living in Colorado and we cut up maybe like a quarter of a scotch bonnet and that's like maybe an inch and a half fruit. I mean, they're not very big and we had a huge saucepan with this curry in it. And we're like, ah, oh, it's just a quarter of a pepper. I cut this up, not wearing gloves, threw it into the curry. And that was just enough to make, to add some nice heat to the curry, but not thinking of it. And after washing my hands three, four times, about an hour, hour and a half later, wasn't thinking about it at all, rubbed my eye and it was like I got maced. Mm. It was, and that was after washing my hands several times. So, and, and not to mention any, anyone gardening, like if, if you've handled any pepper and then God forbid you go to the bathroom and you touch your groin with pepper fingers, you will make that mistake once. Just, just the one time. Make, if you make that mistake twice, shame on you. <laughs> Absolutely shame on you. If you touch, if you touch your pee-pee with pepper two times or more, shame on you. Um, <laughs> but uh, but wow, that was a mistake I only made one time of uh, chopping up, and that was jalapenos. So that's where I was saying, like, even jalapenos can burn depending on what you're touching. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, good call. If you're harvesting peppers, even just simply harvesting them and pulling them off the plant, yep. just wear gloves. So, uh, all right. So the other peppers that I'm growing this year, I have Melrose, 
which uh, I was originally looking for Lunchbox, but I didn't see Lunchbox at the time that I was purchasing. Lunchbox is a nice sweet pepper, similar to what you might find in a grocery store, those bags of sweet peppers that are, you know, gosh, anywhere between two and three inches long, an inch wide. And they usually come in like a, a rainbow, yellow, orange, red pack, and they're delicious. I've many times I will find myself snacking on those with some veggie green cheese and a cracker. They're so delicious. But I chose Melrose, which isn't a new pepper by any means, but it's new to me. I've never grown Melrose, which is supposed to be a sweet sort of lunchbox style pepper um, that doesn't get overwhelmingly large and is a pretty good producer. So I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. And then I have Shishido. Shishido is not super common to find. You're likely not going to find that at a box store, but you might find it in an independent garden center potentially. Like I said, they're not common. But this is traditionally used in a lot of Asian cuisine, and it's great for stir fry. It's got a thin wall. It's usually more on the sweeter side, but can definitely get some heat to it, especially if you let it age. A lot of times they're harvested when they're green. But if you let it age to red and it's uh, it's interesting how that works, you know, some peppers as they age, they turn sweeter. Some peppers as they age, they turn hotter. Shishido is one that would be categorized as turning hotter as it ages. But even the the name tag for it or the descriptive tag for it says uh, just inexplicably one out of 100 peppers is just going to be very hot. So, <laughs> so a nice little nice little fun um experiment here. So it's my first time growing shishitos, but I am looking forward to uh, cooking with them. So yeah, those are my tomatoes and peps and any honorable mentions for peppers you want to throw out. I know we kind of talked about the gong bao, but anything that you prefer or really like to grow, Nick? Yeah. One more I wanted to throw out there. I know a lot of people are familiar with the banana pepper as far as being kind of that long skinny not terribly skinny mm-hmm. but inch inch and a half wide depending on if it's one of the regular bananas or they're they're a few commonly pickled yeah larger varieties if you like that especially i love that type of pepper like you said pickled on a sandwich if you like that but a little more heat the hungarian hot or peppercini they're kind of roughly in that same category of being like a yellow chartreuse yellow uh, long pepper those are excellent if you want that little extra kick so that's and, and the hungarian hot wax pepper i prefer either to pickle or to if you're going to eat it fresh to like grill it or blanch it Ooh, because yeah. they do have a really thick skin mm-hmm. um and so hence the hot wax you know it's kind of that nice waxy coating mm-hmm. thick skin but i do find that the banana peppers Sometimes they can have that same thick skin, but they tend to be a little bit thinner skin than the Hungarian hot wax. Sure. Uh, Real quick, too, I know we're throwing a lot of veggie varieties out there in this episode, and we're going to have a few more here before we wrap up. I just wanted to mention a few sources for you all to find some of these veggie seeds and ones that I've personally purchased from before, both as an individual and on the wholesale end for greenhouse growing. Baker Creek seeds for the funkier heirloom varieties. I mean, they have all sorts of crazy fun stuff, different colors and shapes and sizes of of your traditional veggies, and then a boatload of ones you've never seen or heard of. 
They're a great source. Seed Savers Exchange as well. They have a pretty cool background as far as uh, both of them, really, Baker Creek and Seed Savers, with people being able to submit varieties that have been historically in their families for years or grown in their country for years. And they create this seed database, essentially, to be able to preserve those varieties. Both of those are great. And then for more on like the tomato and and just other seeds in general, and I've bought from tomatogrowers.com, Johnny's Seeds, Totally Tomato, Harris Seeds, and Park Seed. And, you know, if, if you're on a budget, some of those sites will carry similar varieties or the same varieties. And sometimes you can get a little bit of a, a deal more from one or the other. And don't dilly-dally. If you find one that you like, buy it because there are some serious seed collectors out there and the more unique stuff tends to not last very long on some of these sites. Yeah, your best time to start looking before the spring rush, you know, like January, February even, which I know at the time we're recording this, it's getting a little late to buy seed. I usually recommend we would start stuff in the greenhouse even like first week of March. But for future reference... Yeah, if you start looking in January or February, you'll typically get a better pick because not everybody is out there buying their seed. You know, that's kind of before all the box stores and the garden centers are starting to get their seed packets in and stuff like that. So you're kind of beating the rush. But yeah, if it's something more unusual or more more on the expensive end, because that can fluctuate to, you know, supply of, of one variety one year to the next. Uh, yeah, like Ethan said, definitely buy it if it's something you want to grow. Yeah, I can't. I know this is just kind of a random story, but one of my coworkers at Greenscape is very much into peppers. And there's this one pepper that he always, I'm totally blocking the name of it, but the seeds are, it's a rare variety of pepper and it's a hot one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like 50 cents a seed. Oh, yeah. Um, for that particular pepper. And the plants themselves, you know, from one seed can produce a plant that people will spend $10 on. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, definitely a, a fun market for people who are also looking to kind of, kind of flip peppers or flip plants, you know, if you're looking for that unique stuff. Yeah. But especially the more rare and unusual ones, there's definitely a market for that. I know back when I was in charge of purchasing for particularly what we were going to grow in house or the more unusual varieties of tomatoes and peppers, because, you know, we weren't going to mess around with growing like big boy, better boy, all that, that we could buy in from, from wholesale vendors as plants already. But when I was buying in the seed, that was kind of... Things like the the ghost pepper were a little more common and well known then, but Carolina Reaper, you know, especially at like what two point one or two point two whatever million scovels, like dangerous, Screw like, that. like chemical burns in your mouth, kind of heat. Those weren't as available or or commonly known then as they are now. So yeah, I mean, things like a Carolina Reaper, you could definitely spend like a dollar per seed. And we'd have to sell that plant for 10 bucks or whatever. And I wasn't growing hundreds of them. I mean, you may maybe grow a couple dozen and you'd get those niche people who are looking for that kind of thing. And they would, knowing that we grew so many varieties, they'd come into us first and say, hey, do you have this? And in the back corner of the greenhouse, I'd, at way at the end, I had everything organized by heat level on the Scoville chart. And so way in the back corner of the greenhouse, I would have a handful of those crazy hot varieties for people to wander back and find for those who are that adventurous. 
I have found as I have like the early 20s, Ethan would definitely be that person who would eat those super spicy things. And ha 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 ha, this is fun. Can't wait to soak in cold water tomorrow. <laughs> um, whole body. And now, yeah, now mid 30s, Ethan is like, nah, that ain't that's not about my life. It's, <laughs> it's, I'm not about that lifestyle right now. I'm yeah. cayenne, uh, jalapeno, sometimes habanero. That's about as that's about as far as I go anymore. I just, it, it's gotten to the point where it's like, it's not even flavorful anymore. And I know that there's people who will, who will argue like, no, like Carolina Reapers are so flavorful. And I just want to know when, when, yeah, when I, is it flavorful? Uh, when you're is getting, it, is it flavorful after I'm done crying and sweating and being in pain? <laughs> um, is it flavorful the next day when I'm passing that? When am I supposed to be like, gosh, that pepper was so flavorful and much over like habanero or a few things in that range at that point, unless you're making a giant pot of whatever sauce or whatever you're making, you're using such a small and you're not even using one whole pepper. Well, right. It's just like when you get those super hot sauces, they're like one drop per pot of chili. And I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. But I, once again, I know that, you know, there's, there's a huge market for it. And I know there's so many people that are really into those really hot, spicy peppers. Like I said before, the butthole burners, as I categorize them, that's just not (laughs) what I like anymore. (laughs) It's so, it just hurts. (laughs) I'm not into food that hurts me. It defeats the purpose of eating food. So, yeah, I prefer to take the fuzzy skin off of my kiwi. I prefer to eat peppers that are tasty. I prefer to grow thornless blackberries. <laughs> <laughs> it's way more my level. But anyway, all right. So moving on to the next thing, eggplants. That's my Ooh, next yeah. thing that I'm growing. And I love eggplant. I love fried eggplant, whether it's just sauteed in a little bit of oil and getting like a nice crispy edge to it, but still soft on the inside. I also like battering and deep frying them. I like cooking them like for an eggplant Parmesan or eggplant lasagna. They're just so flavorful and so meaty. Throw them on the grill, marinate them overnight and throw them on a grill. Uh, I am an advocate for anyone who might find themselves a little bit towards uh, picky or apprehensive towards uh, vegetables. Prepare them like meat. Prepare them the same way that you would prepare chicken or a steak works for like cauliflower as well, where if you marinate it and and you throw it on the grill just the same way that you would a piece of chicken or a piece of meat, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the results. Yeah. Um, But anyway, the, the two that I'm growing this year and I might buy a third, we'll see. So I'm getting the Black Beauty, which is your traditional eggplant, kind of what you expect an eggplant to look like at a grocery store, that sort of egg shaped deep, rich, dark purple color, relatively large fruit. I do find that one to have a little bit of a thicker skin to it. So what I like to do when I'm preparing it is I like to just take like a little bit of a peeler, like a carrot or potato peeler. And I don't peel the whole thing, but I'll just like peel like a line down it. And maybe I'll, I'll peel like uh, five or six lines around uh, that fruit. So you still see plenty of that nice purple rich flavor, but it cuts down on that thick skin, especially if you're sauteing it. Now, once you batter and deep fry it, that really doesn't matter as much, but 
it's that's just my personal palette. And so something that I, I offer to people, because a lot of times when I say that you can do that, people are like, oh, I've never thought about doing that. So people will do that with a zucchini or yellow squash sometimes where they don't want to peel all the skin, but they'll just peel part of it. You can do the exact same thing with an eggplant prior to preparing it. Sure. Yeah. And if, but if you want uh, one that's a thinner skin, some of the Asian varieties, one of the more common ones is the Ichiban, yep, uh, which is a skinnier fruit. That one has thinner skin. It's a skinnier, mature fruit. I do find those to be pretty good producers because the fruit takes less time to mature. The plant seems to produce more of those. There's another one that starts with an SH, and I'd said it earlier when we were talking, Nick. I think it's a shiku. S-H-I-K-O-U is another somewhat common. So if you don't find the Ichiban, uh, you might find the shiku. Sometimes at like a box store, they might just refer to it as a Chinese eggplant or an Asian eggplant. And that seems to more often than not be a thinner uh, eggplant species. But those are great ones. That's the one that I'm probably going to still go out and buy just because I do like the flavor of it. and, And I do like the fact that it has a thinner skin. But so far, the two that I have are the Black Beauty and the other one, which is new to me this year, is called Patio Baby. So one that seems to be more targeted towards container gardening, which is exactly what I'm doing this year. I mean, it's a smaller fruit to set about a two to three foot egg shaped fruit. So significantly smaller. I'm curious how it goes. Last year, I grew a variety called Frog's Egg, and I was not satisfied with that one that was supposed to be a more dwarf kind of like a large probably pimento sized fruit but i wasn't really thrilled by the production of it nor the flavor i thought it had a high seed content as well for the amount of fruit that you ended up getting sure so that was my experience Uh, i didn't see them i thought about giving it a second year just kind of how you had said with tomatoes earlier but i didn't see it this year to buy again so i'm trying patio baby to see how successful that is I know another, yeah, the the Asian style eggplants were probably outside of the most common one, the Black Beauty, the Asian style, like the Ichiban were definitely a, a high seller of the eggplant category back when I was growing. Ping Tung, P-I-N-G-T-U-N-G was another mm. variety if I couldn't get. I'm not familiar with that one. Ichiban, I know they're available on Baker Creek's website. Just, again, another Asian style. Thinking of those, I'd liken them similar similar shape to like an English cucumber at the grocery store, kind of long and skinny like that. Okay. For those of you who have a picture of a traditional eggplant in your mind. But yeah, those those were always a, a top pick. I always had good reports back on those as far as flavor, similarly to what you said. And then last, not going into the herbs, like you said, we were going to do that on a separate episode. But the other things I'm growing, I'm going to be growing some potato sets, which I might even buy some sweet potato sets. I think I'm going to stock and get some sweet potato because I freaking love sweet potato. That is one of my favorite vegetables to eat just because you can make them taste savory. You can let them stay sweet the way they are. You can make them even more desserty by adding cinnamon and marshmallow. I, I freaking love sweet potatoes, but I'm going to be growing some purple majesty, which is a really nice, small kind of a red potato size, deep, deep, deep purple, the kind of purple that'll stain your fingers as you're working with it. 
but it's so flavorful and just loaded with really good vitamins. Just that deep color, that deep purple seems to be very associated with all kinds of nutrients in a lot of fruits. So, And I find them to produce pretty well. So I'm growing Purple Majesties. I'm going to grow those in a fiber pot this year instead of a plastic or clay container. Uh, I have very large fiber pots that are made out of compressed organic material. What, like uh, wood so pulp. they're pretty sturdy. But at the end of the year, when the potatoes are ready to harvest, I'll just be able to cut the bottom off of this container and very easily access those potatoes. So I'm excited to see how that goes. Yeah. And then I'm growing some uh, red shallots. I prefer shallots over onions. I think the flavor is a little bit more mild. Any more onions have been one of those things that irritates my stomach for whatever. It used to be something I just loved, like a burger wasn't complete unless it had onions on it. And anymore, I find myself requesting to not have onions on my burgers. But shallots are something that I can still kind of not I don't have any issues with and I enjoy the only thing that I'm going to be growing from seed this year are carrots and I'm going to put those in the containers of my tomato plants um, mm. which I did last year and I've done before I just sprinkle them right around the rim of that just kind of make a nice little line and so they get that little bit of reprieve when the tomato has grown up oh. uh, that tomato the foliage sort mm -hmm. of shields the carrots because they also don't like to grow in the hot 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 months and then the carrots also create nice pockets in the soil they kind of aerate the soil for the tomato plants so mm, i am a big a advocate idea. of growing your carrots in and around your tomato plants so I did that last year and it was pretty successful. I let them stay later in the season. So well after my tomato plants were kind of done in by the cold, uh, I shouldn't say well after, but shortly after my tomato plants were done in by the cold, I was able to dig up my carrots and was pretty happy with the harvest that I got in the containers. Yeah, that's a fun idea. I, I don't know if I knew you did that last year, but yeah, it makes sense to utilize some of that extra space in those containers and yeah, like you said, provide a little shade. Yeah, the the peppers I they didn't do as well in the 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 pots that I had peppers in just because the peppers don't get as bushy as the tomatoes tend to. They yeah. tend to be a little bit more sparse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not watering my peppers as often as I'm watering my tomatoes. True. So the the carrots just seem to perform when I do container planting with carrots, they seem to be much happier in with the tomatoes. Um but even when I grew them in a garden space where they were planted in the ground, I still just sprinkled them all over the ground underneath the tomato uh, side of my garden and mm. was pretty fun just plucking those suckers up. Yeah. And you probably don't have to thin as much as when you're doing a straight row. Right. I just, I would just kind of broadcast spread them and just, you know, cause you can see just because of the, the foliar top, you can see where they're at. Sure. And if I ever noticed that there were a whole bunch that were growing in one area, then yeah, I would thin them because if you don't, you get really wimpy carrots. Yeah. So if you really want that big, thicker, juicier carrots, that dirty root vegetable, then you want to kind of thin them out a little bit. Very fun. So that's that's my garden space for the season. That's what I'm doing. And I'll update in the season as as we produce and we'll touch more. There's, of course, so much more for us to talk about as far as edible gardening, especially containers. Like we had already said, you know, we have a whole episode that we can easily do on herbs and the different things you can do with them. You know, which ones your pollinators might go after. We can talk about bush gardening. So your blueberries, your raspberries, your blackberries, your gooseberries. And then trees, you know, your fruiting trees, your cherries, your peaches, your plums, your pears, your, your apples, a whole bunch for us to talk about on that as well. 
Yeah, and like we said before, herbs, we're going to save that one as a Patreon episode. So that will be coming out around the time of this gardening episode. So you guys can check that out on the Patreon real quick. And likely our orchard episode will be Patreon as well, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think for fruit trees, yeah, that'd be a good one for Patreon. That'll be a fun one. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and to kind of compliment our first episode about apples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick before we wrap up, I had... Four more that are kind of in their own categories that I wanted to mention real quick. Just some fun ones that have grown before. One being, and I know we didn't talk about any cucumbers, but one of them being the dragon's egg cucumber. They're sort of a fun one. Typically, so this is a smooth, thin-skinned, white cucumber. So it looks visually a lot like an egg, like a large egg. Yeah. Now they can get bigger than an egg size. And like any cucumber, if you leave them on too long, they get obnoxiously large. But if you pick those right when they're in kind of that large egg size, just, I mean, you don't really have to peel them because it's such a thin skin. They're smooth. They don't have those kind of spiky bumps that some of your, your typical cucumbers can have. Just a nice, mild, sweet cucumber in a similar-ish category. One that was always a favorite of mine to grow is the Mexican Sour Gherkin. And those are a smaller, it's still kind of a viney, low-growing plant, uh, but they're not going to take up as much space as a lot of your your cucumbers where you might want to, say, put them up a trellis or a little section of fence or whatever at the edge of your garden. They typically get uh, maybe like two, three feet wide or so. And the fruits, the little gherkins, they're about the size of a grape. And their color pattern, they look a lot like a watermelon. Yeah, I've eaten some of those fresh off the plant and they're very tasty. Yeah, they're a great one if you have if you have kids and you want to kind of get them into gardening and just have something that they can go out and pick off the vine, like a cherry tomato. It's just a little grape-sized fruit, and it's kind of like a a crisp, more what, like kind of citrusy. Tanginess to it. Yeah. Yeah, citrusy, tangy, juicy. Cucumber. Very refreshing. Yes, yes, yeah. That was always a favorite. So fun, and you kind of, they blend in so well with the leaves of the plant that you kind of have to search for them a little bit. Just just a really fun one. Pop in your mouth kind of like a cherry tomato does. Exactly, exactly. The dragon's egg, I've never tried. As far as I know, I haven't tried one, but I've been told that they have a very sweet flavor to them, like a creamy sweet flavor. Is that what you kind of describe it as? Yeah, yeah. I And again, if you let them get too big, they could probably, it's been a little while since I grew them, but they could probably get a little bit of that bitterness that a, an old been on the plant too long cucumber could get. But yeah, I... As far as a cucumber that you don't really have to peel or anything and just just a nice size to slice up and throw on your salad or snack on and just use, you know, one instead of, you know, using like a piece of your foot and a half long English cucumber that you'd get at the grocery store. They're they're just a great one for that. And two others here. I had kohlrabi and there are a whole Mm, bunch of different types mm -hmm. of kohlrabi. It's kind of in that same category as like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, they're all in that. I believe it's a something you're likely crop. going to find earlier in the season. That would be kind yes. of your coal crop. Yes. Um sort so of thing. You'd be hard pressed to find kohlrabi in May. Yeah, you could grow 
especially from seed, you could do them with your, your early spring crop and then your fall crop. As soon as summer starts to, mm-hmm. to wind down and the, the temperatures start to drop, you can get in a second crop just like you could with a broccoli, a cabbage, cauliflower, all those. Lettuces, kales, yeah. Yep, exactly. The kohlrabi, it's sort of, it's got a very, it's not a root vegetable. It, it's It's a very bulbous base to the plant and then it has you know it's shoots of leaves growing off of that but you just cut that off at the ground cut off those leaves peel the outside and you have this round it's almost like a it's a texture similar ish to like an apple or a potato yeah yeah not sweet but but i've seen people put them through a cutter and french cut them and use them as a french fry uh potato substitute for french fries my grandparents used in stir fries i love them in stir fry yes for a little texture there Uh, my grandparents out there will just cut them cut them from the garden bring them up peel them slice them up and uh just a little little pinch of salt on there and they're great just eating fresh out of the garden so that's Pickling, a you can pickle them pretty well too. Yeah, yeah. Just a just a great kind of option for a potato substitute or eating them fresh. Yeah, very versatile plant that that I don't see a ton of people using. And finally, if you have a little bit more space in your garden, a squash that I love to use is the delicata squash. And I know you can occasionally see these at the grocery stores. They're kind of a oh six, seven inch long three, four inch wide, stripey, green, yellow, white squash, but they have that Mm -hmm. nice orange, yellow, fleshy inside that you can just cut them in half, put them down in some water or, or even dry in the oven and bake those. And you can, they have such a nice natural sweetness to them that you really don't even, I mean, you could do a little bit of salt. You could do a little bit bit of brown sugar, treat it like a, like a baked sweet potato, um, but just a just a great, very flavorful option for another kind of healthy orange veggie. And if you have grown squash in a container and been successful, please let us know um, <laughs> um, at our email because I have tried that several times and I just haven't gotten to the success rate where I want to continue doing it. Of course, they work great in my garden space as long as you have room for them. If you plant them in the ground, like Nick was saying, you definitely need to give them a wide berth, three to four feet minimum, um, or put them towards the end. If you work it on a raised garden bed, put them at the end and let them grow over the sides of your raised garden bed. Just know that, you know, you'll just want to be a little bit careful when you're mowing if that garden bed is in your your lawn area. Definitely um, one to give, I just, give some space. Yeah, I just haven't been successful in getting other things in the cucurbit family as well, like the squash, like melons. I haven't been able to successfully grow in a container. I know that with cucumbers, especially bush cucumbers, those seem to do pretty decent sure, um, in yeah. containers. More tiny ones for me and my experience over the years. Not as successful, not as successful in the containers with vining cucumbers. And like I said, minimal success with uh, melons or uh, squash in containers. So if you have been successful, I'd be curious to know what your tactics are. I wonder if you really juiced them up with a good organic fertilizer at a relatively high rate once the plant got established and had it on a dripper on a timer and just had it always constant moisture and and very even if, if you'd be able to get them in a container. Yeah. Or maybe I just, I just need to get like even bigger containers, like just like cattle troughs and at that point 
maybe buy a couple at the store. <laughs> right. At that point. Yeah. When you're dropping $300 on a cattle trough for <laughs> flipping squash. And I'm like, ah, yeah. So right. squash uh, for me, when I do container gardening over in ground gardening is one of those things where I'm just going to find some delectable varieties in my local grocery store. <laughs> right. And some of these varieties, too, that we've talked about today, if you only have space for a few little containers and you just have maybe room for a tomato, a couple peppers, maybe some herbs in a pot, some of these variety names could be ones that your local farmer's market growers could could carry. Uh, so you might be able to find some of that at, at those types of venues more so than your local grocery store, be able to support a local grower and and try a veggie that's a little more off the beaten path and something you wouldn't typically see at a, at a chain grocery store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that about wraps us up on this portion of veggie gardening. What do you think, Ethan? Yeah. Yeah. I hope you guys found some, uh, some interest in what we talked about. I know we kind of focused more on our own personal um, experiences as opposed to a generalization on a lot of different things. But uh, our personal experiences comes from trial and error of trying certain things. And I think we have a pretty good list of things for you to get some information from, for you to make your own decisions. Uh, Nick's going to have lots of things listed in the the links. So uh, yeah, have fun. Embrace the trial and error of gardening. You're not going to be perfect all the time. Uh, and this applies to whatever aspect of gardening that you're doing. So embrace it. Have fun with it. The nice thing about vegetable gardening, which is why I think it's a starting point for a lot of people, is it's not terribly expensive. It's, a, you know, you're not overly breaking the budget. So if you have some things that don't quite work out, it's not like something you lost $50, $100 on. And uh, there's so many different options that you can try. There's so many things you can experiment with uh, and have fun or, or doing multiple plantings together in the same container. So there's all kinds of cool things you can try. And just we just want people to embrace the fun of veggie gardening. Yeah, for sure. And have uh, access to something fresh, something healthy that you grew yourself. Yeah, you get a lot of satisfaction out of that, whether it works out or not. It's, yeah, like you said, just a fun, fun to experiment, fun to play around. Yeah. And with that, thank you for listening to the Take It or Leave It podcast. Until next time, this is Nick Farrington. And this is Ethan Wise. And we'll see you guys soon. Bye.